Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. For who were those who heard yet and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he had said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest and has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and, it's, and discerning the, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All right. I, um, man, you all have been um, just so incredibly gracious to me through the years and my, my family. It's a trip I make um, every year with my son Grayson and my brother-in-law Bill Jones with the beard and generally his boys make the trip with us as well and um, I, I just I, I feel like I, I understand we're almost home but I, I feel like I feel at home and so just thank you for your hospitality. I, I love you. I love this church. I really do. Um, look forward to being here with you but it, like Shane said we talk um, almost every week, not every week, but almost every week, there will be a moment where we'll call each other and catch up. And so I know, I feel like probably I know you better than you know me, but that's all right. But uh, first thing I want you to know, I, I love you and I, I love your pastor and I know you love him as well, but I love him. Um, I'm indebted to Shane Hartsfield. Um, the folks at my, the church where I pastor are indebted to Shane Hartsfield. When I first met Shane 20 years ago, um, I had a theology, it just wasn't a sound or a good or a biblical theology. I had a made-up theology, it was a theology of Andy Lawrence, what I thought God was like, uh, because I hadn't spent adequate time in the Word. 
I wasn't an expositor. I couldn't exposit my way out of a wet paper bag, let alone exposit my way through a text of Scripture. And God used Shane in my life just to challenge me on some of those things and sow seeds into my heart. And then why he and Jenny were in China, God did a work and manifested those seeds. And I've got a theology, a biblical one, and try to be a better expositor. And so I just, um, I'm, I'm, I'm indebted. I'm thankful. And so is our church. Um, if, you have, if you have your Bibles, um, you've already heard the text of Scripture, but keep those out. Um, you hopefully, as, as, as it was being read and as you were reading along, hopefully you could pick up on the, on the theme. The theme of the text is the idea of rest. Now, like maybe I just didn't think through it. Like I got to choose anywhere in the Bible I wanted to preach this morning. I didn't have to stick to Daniel. And so I chose this and maybe I didn't think through it very much on after a wildlife supper and how hard you all have worked all weekend to talk about rest. It could kind of be like a few years ago I was preaching in through the book of John. I got to John chapter 4 the woman at the well, and, and Jesus speaking about being the living water, and we had a visiting family with us that was sitting on about the third row back, and while I was preaching, I was a, a minute into my sermon, by a minute, I mean probably 40 minutes into my sermon, and I heard the young man say to one of our elders, like, he's going to have to hush up because I'm so thirsty after talking about living water, and maybe you'll do that this morning as I talk about rest. You'll be like, hush up. You're about to put me to rest, but uh, we see here in this text the rest, but the rest that he's speaking about isn't just a physical rest, it's more than that. In fact, I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about rest. Maybe as you think about rest, maybe you think about that afternoon nap that you're going to get today. Maybe you think about a, an extended vacation, some kind of vacation or some kind of staycation. There's other kinds of vacations out there that some of you have participated in, and maybe that's what you think about when you think about rest. But this isn't the rest that the author of Hebrews is speaking about. He's not just talking about a good hunting trip or a fishing trip or a nap. He's speaking more. And in fact, like challenge maybe some of us in our thinking, like when you think about rest, do you think about it as a, as a vice or as a virtue? Like I know that many of you were probably raised the way that I was raised and, and laziness certainly is a sin, but even rest sometimes could be seen as a vice and not a virtue, not a blessing from the Lord. Like my dad was one, like, like Shane's dad, like Mr. Mike, that was a little, a little rough around the edges, a little hard on us at times. There was a lot of things that we could do and a lot of things that we could not do, but one thing that was not tolerated was, was resting. One thing that was not tolerated was laziness. In fact, my dad would come in and if we were watching TV, he'd say, hey, you don't have anything better to do? Why don't you come on outside with me? Let's see if we can't find something for you to do. And so sometimes for many of us, we could think of rest in that way. But what we want to see here in this text is rest is a blessing from the Lord and rest is a bigger picture of what it means to abide in the Lord. That rest isn't just the absence of doing something, but rather it's, it's, it's the presence of trusting and the presence of abiding in God. And so what the, what the author of Hebrews does here is he's gonna use rest and he's gonna show us how rest plays a role in the storyline of the Bible. Like, notice what he's going to do. He's going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at that. And he's going to work his way from Genesis chapter 2 all the way to the modern day in which he's writing. He's going to Genesis chapter 2. He's going to go to Exodus. He's going to go to Psalms. He's going to go throughout the Bible as he's going to point to this picture, the meta narratives, the storyline of the Bible, and he's going to show them how rest plays a role. And the author of Hebrews is doing that all throughout Hebrews. He's showing how the Old Testament is promises, and those promises are being fulfilled in Christ, and those promises are for us even today. Like even as you read that text, or as we heard that text being read, we saw the, the word today. 
Over and over again, there was the refrain of today because it even lands upon us that we can see rest. But here's what I want us to see. That unbelief forfeits rest. Well, I saw that up here, but I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. We dismiss. We're going to rest for a second. We're going to dismiss kids to children's church. Like I was pausing and I kind of pointed at it. I thought Miss Jenny would say, yeah, we'll dismiss kids to children's church. Although I, although I preach on about a third grade level. I'm not smart as Shane. Shane went all the way through school. I didn't. I got tired of it and had to take a rest. Never went back. All right. Here's the main point of the text, which hopefully is the main point of the sermon. And it's this, that there is a rest that is offered through enduring faith in Jesus' finished work, it's available now. It's available, not, not, again, not physical rest, no naps, it's, but it's available now. And better than that, it's what we just sung about. It promises eternal rest in the future. But unbelief forfeits rest. And like I said, what he's going to do is he's going to look at it in a couple reiterations. This idea of rest is a couple reiterations throughout the, what we'd say, the, the narrative, the storyline of the Bible. Now, the author of Hebrews puts them out of chronological order. So I'm going to not follow the, the text of Scripture in a strict way, but rather I'm going to put them in chronological order. So on Wednesday night in the hermeneutics class, when Pastor Shane teaches it, he can say, here's something not to do. Like, don't reorder the text of Scripture, but let the text of Scripture be in the right order. But we're going to look at it a little out of order. The first picture we get of this idea of rest comes in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. So all the way at the top. So God has just created six days of creation. And after the sixth day of creation, on the seventh day, the Scripture says that God rested. He rested from all of his works. And we see that in the text of Scripture. In chapter number four, in verse number three, the latter part of that, he says, although his works, meaning God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world, for it has somewhere spoken of the seventh day. And again, he's speaking of Moses here. Moses re, uh, recounting the story to the Israelites. And so he's telling that in Genesis chapter two, verse two, is what he's quoting here. For somewhere has spoken of the seventh day in this way, that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now listen, God rested on the seventh day because creation was completed. So his rest wasn't just that he ran out of energy. It wasn't just that God got tired because God never, never sleeps nor slumbers. He never gets tired. God is self-sufficient in his existence. He needs nothing outside of himself and he never gets weary. But God rested because creation was complete. complete uh, it was finished. It doesn't say later on in the book of Genesis that on day 10, God put some finishing touches on creation. Like he didn't, he didn't enter into the project like some of us men might do at some home projects where we still got to do a little touch-up paint, maybe, maybe, maybe fix this in a, in a year or so after we started the project, right? We could almost finish and we're like, okay, we're almost done. We put the paintbrushes up and put all of that up and then we'll go back. God didn't do that. Whenever it says here in, the, in Genesis account, it says that God has completed all that he's made and what he's made, he's already declared it to be good, yea, very good, and there's satisfaction in what he's completed. And so on the seventh day, he rests. 
And he's already made Adam and Eve. He's already made his cre- creation. He's already made the, the pinnacle of his creation. Those of us, the, the um, humanity who's made in his image. And Adam and Eve are invited to participate in that Sabbath. And so, yes, Sabbath for, in Genesis chapter 2, there's an idea where, where Sabbath is a particular day. But even as Moses retells the event, all the other six days, they, he, he starts off by saying there was morning and there was evening. So there was a beginning to the day and then there was an end to the day, except on the seventh day. Scripture doesn't say there was a morning and there, and there was an evening. It was, a, it was the idea that, that this Sabbath was to, to continue. Yes, there'd be work to do in Eden, but the work that was given to Adam and Eve is not like the work that you and I engage in. The work that you and I engage in after the fall, it's work. Like the, the ground is going to produce, he says that, and, and Adam and Eve are called to go out and exercise dominion to subdue the earth, subdue the, to, to harness the earth's resource for human flourishing. That's what they're commanded to do, to build out culture, and they're going to do that, but it's unlike the work that you and I do. And so we, we see that in the text, that they're entering into God's Sabbath, into God's satisfaction, into God's completion, but that doesn't last very long. Chapter three happens. That's what follows chapter two, chapter three. And in chapter three of Genesis, what do we see? Is we see sin. Adam and Eve sin against our creator. They sin against God. And what I like to say, and we say at the Point Community Church, is sin wrecks everything. And it did wreck everything. And it brought this idea, even it wrecked work. And it brought in through the curse, now no longer is there rest, but rest has been disrupted. And why was it disrupted? It was disrupted because of sin. And not just any sin, but a particular kind of sin, unbelief. That Eve didn't believe God to be good and God to be sufficient and everything that God had created to be good and sufficient. She thought that God was withholding something good from them, right? The fruit of the tree. She saw it and was like, oh, God must not be good. Why would a good God withhold this? It's pleasing to the eyes and I'm sure it would taste good. And so there's unbelief that leads, leads to disobedience and that disobedience brings in sin. And sin wrecks, like I said, sin wrecks everything, including the idea of rest and work. This idea of Sabbath and Sabbath rest gets disturbed, and now we got to go to work, and work's going to be through the sweat of our brow, and it's going to be toil, and it's going to be hard work, and I know that you as a people, you understand that. I have roots like your roots, blue-collar roots, and so I understand hard work, but that's not the way that things were intended to be. So the first picture of rest we see is in Genesis chapter 2, Sabbath rest, and then we have another reiteration of that rest as it's found in the Sabbath day, that God commands rest, that God, as he calls the Israelites to himself and takes them to Mount Sinai and gives them the law, included in the law, included in the Ten Commandments, is the command for rest. It's the command of a 24-hour period of inactivity, right? So, even as you think about the Ten Commandments, I would say most of the commandments probably make sense to you, right? Do not murder. You're like, hey, I'm, I'm a big fan of not murdering one another, right? That's a good one, right? Except for the guy that drives real slow in the fast lane. Like, he deserves murdering, but everybody else we, we could show grace to, right? We're really gl- big fan of people not stealing my stuff, big fan. Not being lied to, big fan. But commandment number four, the Sabbath, even for us as Christians, like, what do we do with that? Does that mean we can't go out to eat? 
I mean, I hope not. I'm planning on going to Popeye's after this. I hope we can't go out to eat on Sunday, but we really don't know what to do with that command. Here's what the command says as it's given in Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath unto the Lord. On it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord uh, made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. He set it apart from all the other days. But then you may say, well, well, why? And here's the reality. Like the command for Sabbath for the children of Israel wasn't just a command, like I said, of inactivity. It wasn't just that God's saying here that like, like I'm a good parent and I know what's best for you. And sometimes you just need to take a nap. Like those of us that have, have parented toddlers, we, we understand that, right? Your toddler gets real, real tired, and then what follows is your toddler gets cranky, and then what follows is your toddler becomes a terrorist, right? Only the difference between a toddler and a terrorist is you can negotiate with a terrorist. You can't negotiate with a toddler that's melting down. And so your toddler's melting down because you won't let the toddler smell the color purple, right? And what you say to your toddler is, you know what you need right now? You just need a nap. And your toddler goes, no, no, nappy, no, no. You're just saying, shh, I just think you need to lay down. No, I'm not. And you're just, oh, shh. Listen, the command for Sabbath isn't just that God's being a good God and saying, hey, sometimes what you need and is most needed in your life is just take a nap and rest. It's not just God saying like, hey, you can get more done in six days with fresh energy if you rest on the seventh day. It's not just that for the children of Israel, but rather it's a call to great faith. I mean, think about this. You're, li you're living in a time that there's no refrigeration. There's no preservatives. They worked seven days a week because they had to work seven days, to, uh, seven days a week in order to put food on the table in order to eat, in order to have everything. You had to go out every day and gather and collect and make food. It's like those shows sometimes that we watch. You know, I, I watch a, a lot of the shows about the Alaskan bush people and how they just, uh, you know, every day they're working. Every day when the sun is shining, they got to prepare. If we're going to have food in the winter, we got to do it today. And this is the kind of existence that was, uh, that was in effect in this time even much more. It's not like our time where everybody's working for the weekend. Thank you. Everybody's working for the weekend. Those are my generation. You remember that lover boy song? There were no weekends. In fact, the only people that got a weekend were the Israelites. They were given a weekend. One day off, they could rest. And it was a supreme act of faith. And even in that, it's a reminder that rest isn't the absence of doing anything, but it's the presence of trusting God in everything, that's the picture. It's a supreme act of faith that God is saying to the Israelites, trust me, trust me to be your provider. Trust me that I will provide for you with six days of work and one day of rest, trust me. We even see in that the picture that unbelief forfeits rest. The third picture of rest that we see in the Bible is the Canaanite conquest where God promises them a land in which they will rest, a land of their own. And Exodus begins with the Israelites who are slaves in Egypt. And what are they doing? They're working. And you got this, this picture of slavery coming in 
where even where Pharaoh is this cruel taskmaster and he's increasing the work, increasing the labor on them. So now you gotta make, you may gotta make bricks, but now you gotta go gather your straw. And so he's increasing the work and God comes to them to remind them of the promised land. This picture of a, of a land that's flowing with milk and honey is what he's saying to them. It's the promise of rest. And so God delivers them out of Egypt and leads them toward the promised land. Do they go from Egypt to the promised land? Nope. There's something in between called the wilderness. And we, God leads them on purpose in the wilderness. And what's happening to them in the wilderness is their faith is being tested while in, their, in the wilderness. That the wilderness is on purpose. It's not just taking them to a destination, but in fact, God leading the people will lead them at times to certain places where their faith is being tested. Literally, there are times where God will lead them to seemingly dead ends, places where there is no water and they're thirsty. And why did he do that? To show himself as a provider who will provide water. There'll be times when they'll get hungry and they'll say, we don't have bread to eat. And so what will they do? They'll cry out to God and then God will rain down bread from heaven. And they'll be eating this bread and collecting this bread called manna. This is like a miracle from God as God's saying he's a provider. And then they'll murmur and complain and get tired of it. And they'll say, God, we're sick of the bread. And so then what will God do? He'll bring some, some quail. In fact, I think we need to be more biblical. And next year we need some more quail at the wildlife supper. Got plenty of raccoon. I think I even gnawed on a little beaver tail yesterday. I don't know who made that, but it was good. But we need some, uh, maybe we need some quail. But this God, ultimately, what's God doing? He's, he's shown himself to be a provider. He will lead them all the way to a particular city, the city called Kadesh Barnea. Canaan is just on the other side. The promised land is right there where they can see it. And they'll, they'll send out 12 spies, one from each of the tribes of Israel. They'll go across. They'll scout out. They'll spend 40 days scouting out the promised land. And then they'll come back and they bring up a, a good news. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. You see this in chapter 4, verse 2. Bump up a little bit. For the good news came to us, he says, just as to them. And so he's speaking about those who've received the good news from the 12 spies that have come back and they've been like, it's just as God promised. It's a land flowing with, with milk and honey. In fact, as they come back, they'll, they'll bring back with them clusters of grapes. They're not carrying these clusters of grapes in baskets. They're too big to carry on baskets. They're carrying them on poles because what they've uncovered is the promised land and it's like Eden-like over there. It's just like similar to the way that it would have been in Eden. And they, they see all this, but then they also say there's giants in the land. And look at what he says. He says, the good news came to us just as to them. The report of the promised land came to them. The promise of, of rest. But look at what he says. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. Unbelief. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, will say, let's go. If God be for us, who could be against us? Let's take it. The other 10 spies will say, no, let's don't. And instead of believing the two and mixing their faith, right? The faith of the, of the people with the faith of the two, they'll believe the 10. We're outnumbered. They're outnumbered. They're outvoted. They'll put their faith not with the two, but rather with the, the 10. And they'll say, no, we can't do it. And what the writer of Hebrews says, even in, the, even in this text, Look at verse number, uh, chapter three, verse 16. For who were those who heard, heard the good news, 
heard the message and yet they rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and whom he, he did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And here's the point, so that we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They estimate a million and a half Israelites left out of Egypt. How many enter into the promised land of that generation? Two. Why? Unbelief. Unbelief. They'll die in the wilderness. Why? Because of unbelief. Because unbelief forfeits rest. In fact, we see a pattern. The pattern is this, that good news comes as words of promise, but it must be believed. God must be trusted in. And unbelief leads to disobedience and disobedience leads to death, leads to punishment leads to judgment. The writer Hebrews picks up on another picture of rest, picture number four of the five, but picture number four is the settling of the promised land. He says that where God gives them partial rest, that after 40 years of punishment and death, then comes Joshua, as we see here in the text. But Joshua will lead them into the promised land, not as a testimony of their faithfulness, but rather a testimony of God's faithfulness. God always keeps his promises. Even when we're not, even when we don't, even when we're faithless, God is faithful. And so God will do it as he will bring the Israelites into the promised land, but it's not a place of rest. It's not like Sabbath day rest that was in the creation account. It's not even like the rest that has been promised. It's even a different picture. Look at chapter four, verses eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day of rest later on. It's like, you're not there yet. Don't rest yet. You're not there. This isn't the rest that I promised. And the later on he's speaking of as David will speak about this day of rest in Psalm number 95. The point is the promised land was not the final ultimate fulfillment of Sabbath rest, but there's another day of rest coming. That Israel never entered full rest because of their unbelief. Moses couldn't make it happen. Joshua couldn't make it happen. But God has a rest far greater than Canaan that God has a rest. And here is the point. It's available through faith in Jesus Christ. It's available by believing in the promises made and the works completed by the person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is greater than Moses, the one who is greater than Joshua, the one who is greater than the Israelites, the one who is greater than David, that God has made it available. And it's available in Jesus. And that is the good news. The good news of the gospel is God's rest finds its fulfillment in Christ. And now you see the the importance of some of Jesus' words. Even as you read this text, maybe you picked up on some of Jesus' words. You think about it in in Matthew um, chapter 11, for example, in verse number 28, when Jesus cries out, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And what's he say? I will give you rest. He's not just speaking about the work that they were doing in the field. He's not just talking about bringing in the sheaves. He's not just talking about harvesting and working. Rather, what he's talking about is the labor of the law. The rest that he speaks about isn't just physical rest of laying down and taking a nap, but what he's speaking about is the rest from our works where we can believe in Jesus and his finished and final work. 
As you even think about Jesus' last words on the cross. Some of Jesus' last words, do you remember those? Right before he gives up the spirit, right before he dies, what's he cry out? Three words. It is finished. It's the same picture here, the same thing you see in Genesis chapter 2. God has completed his works and so he rests and Jesus is completing the work of salvation so that we may enter into rest. Just like the seventh day Sabbath, people are now being invited in. Some from every tribe, nation, and tongue are being invited in as they hear the good news into the Sabbath that Christ has performed for us, that Christ has completed the work of him perfectly keeping the law, the work of his substitutionary death on a cross, the work of his victorious resurrection from the grave, the work of his glorious ascension into the high where he sits right now at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling and interceding for us and poised to return. And the gospel is a command, just like the fourth command. It's the command of rest. It's a command and a promise that brings rest and so, in fact, we see this in chapter 4, verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest. It, it wasn't here. It wasn't there. He's gone through four reiterations of it, and he's saying none of them were a true fulfillment of the Sabbath rest that comes through the gospel. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. And again, what works? The works of, of the law. Legalistic works to win God's favor, to earn God's favor. We can rest from all of those works, our, our faux morality. You understand like the, the, word, the, the word faux, it, it looks like something on the, the outside, but it really has no substance to it on the inside. You know, it's like a, it's like a, a piece of veneer our veneer of morality that we slap onto the outside of our lives, that now we can be truly honest with God about like in the confession that Morgan led us in earlier, that we can be honest and say that we're sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, but we find in Christ forgiveness. This word here that the author of Hebrews uses, to whom we don't know who he is, million dollar question, Jeopardy said it was Paul, but it's probably not Paul. We don't know. Maybe Apollos. As I've been preaching through the book of Hebrews, every week I, I think it's somebody else, but we don't know. But the writer, as he uses this word Sabbath rest, it's one word in the Greek, and it's sabtismos. And it means this Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping. It's, it's to remind us that we don't make Sabbath. The Sabbath is provided that we enter into Sabbath. We enter into it by faith. We enter into a relationship. We enter into the finished work of Christ. We enter into Christ's perfect morality, into Christ's righteousness, into Christ's merit, into Christ's favor, favor with the Father, not based upon us, but based upon him. It's by faith. And Sabbath keeping is exercising that faith. It's exercising belief. It's exercising in trust in God's provision, in God's accomplishment, in God's sufficiency. And that is what Christianity is. Christianity is not just about you trying to be a good person, although we appreciate that as citizens and as neighbors. Be a good person. 
Mow your grass and don't throw your grass clippings over into my yard. That's good. Pick up, like I live in a subdivision. Pick up after your dog. That's being a good, that's being a good person. Do that. Be a good neighbor. Help out your neighbors. Be a good person. Be a good moral person. But that's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is about Christ and what Christ has worked. Christianity isn't about you working for your salvation. It isn't about you working off your sins. It isn't about you trying to be a better you, trying harder to do better. That's not the message of Christianity. Christianity is about you trusting and resting and believing in Christ and Christ alone. Now, again, if you do that, he'll make you a better person. If you do that, he'll clean up some of those rough ages. If you do that, he will make you a a better neighbor and a better citizen. But ultimately, it's about trusting in Christ. And finally, the last picture of rest that we see is the picture of heaven. That's the final picture. It's the song that we sang right before I got up here so many minutes ago. It's heaven where God restores rest like it was in Genesis chapter 2, where we rest and we trust and we believe. Are we going to do work in heaven? Man, I sure hope so. There'll be stuff to do. We'll get some stuff done in heaven. It just won't be toil, praise the Lord. It won't be by the sweat of the brow, but there'll be things I believe to do in heaven. But here we see that the rest comes and the final picture of that rest promised. We see it in this word of exhortation here even. Look at what he says in verse number 11. Let us, he's speaking to the church now, Let us, church, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What sort of disobedience? The disobedience of unbelief. The disobedience of a hard heart that leads us to unbelief. The disobedience of Disbelieving God, disbelieving God in his word, not trusting in the full finished work of Christ, keeping it and entering into the Sabbath, but us trying to do things of our own or us neglecting it, as we talked about even last night shortly. See to it that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, the disobedience and unbelief. But notice what he says, strive to enter. Strive to enter into rest. That doesn't make much sense to me. Striving to enter into rest. It almost seems like that sentence is uh, like an oxymoron. It doesn't feel like it should go together. You're striving to enter rest. I thought we're resting, so why are we striving? Why are we working to enter? And here's the reality, because we're not there yet. We're not there yet. That what we have in Christ is is a foretaste of what is to come. That we have the fullness and the finality of our righteousness now, but we're not yet there. We've been freed from the slavery of sin, pictured like in Egypt, but this isn't yet the promised land either. This isn't Beulah land or Canaan land. It's in sight, but guess where you and I are right now? In the wilderness. That's where we are. And God's with us and he's leading us and he's providing for us. But this isn't heaven. 
as beautiful as West Tennessee is, as beautiful, yay, more beautiful possibly, Central Kentucky may be, it's not heaven. It's not. We're not there yet. We're in the wilderness. And what happened to the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness? It was a season of testing. And guess what this is for us as well? It's a season of testing. That's why Peter, as he's writing in chapter 1, I, I thought maybe you were going to read it and you were going to get there. I was like, ooh, come on. But, but just before the part that we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, he tells us that, so that, 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 that testing and trials and hardships come to test the genuineness, Peter says, of our faith. And that's what's happening now. Right now in this world, as Jesus says, in this world you shall have tribulation. Amen? You go, Jesus, of all your words that you said that we can testify that are true, that we can say yes and amen to, it's those words that in this world you will have tribulation, you will have hardships, you will have suffering. Why? Because you're not there yet. But Jesus is what? Take hope. Be of good courage because I have overcome the world. I've overcome this world and you and I, we're united by faith now and we're striving to enter into God's rest in this time because it's a work of faith. That's where we are. That's what we must have. And so as we wind down and come to a close, let me give you just two takeaways. Two words of exhortation and that I want to really build upon from this 11th verse. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Number one, may we experience rest now as we live by faith and rest in Jesus. Listen, unbelief forfeits, unbelief forfeits rest. And it just doesn't mean in salvation Right, this isn't just salvific rest that God has promised, but I think he's promised a rest that is now that, we can, that we, can, we can experience. That through our faith in Christ that we can lay a hold of a very real present reality of rest in this life. And many of our present experiences, many of our, our negative emotions that you and I, that we struggle with day in and day out are because of the same root cause. It's because of a lack of belief. It's due to unbelief. Remember, unbelief forfeits rest. And some of the rest that you and I, we, we lack in this life and the negative emotions we experience are due to unbelief. A failure to rest in Jesus. A failure to rest in God's provision and God's sufficiency and God's sovereignty and God's compassion and his care. Many of the negative emotions that we feel and you say, like what? Well, like bitterness and apathy and a lack of compassion, and a lack of concern for other people, and my worry, and much of my anxiety, and my fears, and my condemnation, and my shame, and my guilt, and my envy. And whenever I'm prideful, and brash, and angry, and impatient, and downcast, and jealous, many of those emotions find their genesis in unbelief. Those aren't just emotions that I feel, but many of those emotions and experiences are indicators 
of a lack of belief and a lack of trust in, in Jesus and in his care and in his, his forgiveness and in his provision in my life. They're contra emotions. Like you go, where did you get that? Um, where did you get that list? I got that list from Pastor Shane's prayer journal of things that he's been trying. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I could have, or in my prayer journal, or in your prayer journal. But no, that list is the the contra emotions to the fruit of the spirit. I took looked at Galatians five twenty two through 23, and I thought, what's the opposite of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? And that's the list that I came up with. It's that list. And the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Holy Spirit when we're abiding and when we're resting in Jesus and in His finished work. That in the wilderness... What God wanted from the Israelites was not for them just to trust in him, but for them to trust him. And there's a big difference between the two. That many of us as Christians, we believe in Jesus and we believe in his sufficiency when it comes to salvation and we should, but many of us lack just daily trusting him for the small things in our lives. That what God wanted to the Israelites, what he was proving himself to be, is to, to be a father that loved them and to care for them. And he was constantly saying, trust me as your provider. That's why he took them to places where there was no water. And when there was water, it was bitter water. That's where he literally took them between a rock and a hard place. They said, we're gonna thirst to death, right? You kids ever said that? I'm gonna thirst to death back here in the back seat. You'll be all right. Suck it up. That's what I told my boy, right? It's good parenting advice. That's not what God did though. He said, Moses, take your staff and strike this rock and watch provision flow from it. And later on, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians that that, that, that picture right there, the picture of provision coming from striking a rock points to Christ that Christ on the cross is being struck. And as he is stricken on the cross, provision flows out from him. Provision for salvation, but also provision for everything that we need in this life. All that we need for life and godliness, he has provided for us. And he's proving himself to be a provider. He's calling us to trust him and to trust his heart and to trust in him as well. And oftentimes an inability to trust him could be an indicator that we really don't even trust in him. So number one, may we experience rest now as we live by faith and rest in Jesus. And number two, may we abide and we rest in Jesus through enduring faith all the way to the end. All the way until we see that final resting place when someday either Christ splits the eastern sky Man, I hope right now Gabriel's puckering up. Don't you all hope that? Like, I hope all of the hardship and trials of this life, they've got an expiration date on them. And that extra day, expiration date will either be through Jesus returning or for us going to see him. And until that day, may we have faith that endures 
An enduring faith is a faith that endures. And may we stay focused on him. And someday, someday we will cross over into the promised land. And we'll enter into the rest of heaven. And what a day that will be. And until then, may we strive to enter. May we remain, may we trust, may we abide. May we strive to enter into the rest. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the rest that you've promised us and the rest that you've given us in and through yourself and your work. Thank you that you are a provider and that you're good and that you have displayed yourself even in the midst of hardships to be good. Thank you, Jesus, that you're an overcomer and you've overcome this world. We see that in your victorious resurrection and your glorious ascension. We believe that by faith is where you're sitting now, where you're where you're, where you're reigning and you're ruling. We believe that about you, even in the midst of trials and difficulties and things that we don't understand, but yet we believe none of them undermine your sovereignty and none of them undermine your goodness. Lord, as our faith, as, our, as, our, as the testing of our faith, as it reveals our true hearts, may we repent of any unbelief that we have so that we may not forfeit rest and may we believe in you all the more. May we place faith in you, Lord. And Lord, as we enter into a response time, a time of singing and worshiping and thanking as you, as we, as we even heard in the latter part of that text, Lord, that you see our hearts, you reveal our hearts, Lord. Nothing is hidden from your sight. And Lord, if there be in any unbelief in us, Lord, may you make that known so that we can repent of it. May you, by your grace, may you strengthen our faith, Lord. Jesus, may we continue to make much of you until our last days. Now unto him who is able to keep us, Jesus, keep us, hold us, keep us in the faith. For your glory, we pray this. Amen. Won't you stand with us? We're going to end our service. We're going to sing together. But If you're here and you've never experienced rest in Christ, you've never repented of your sin and trusted what Christ did on the cross as your own. I'd love to talk to you about that. And there's a lot of people in this room that experienced that and love to talk to you about that. So grab us. We'll be, we'll be here. We'd love to talk to you about that. You can send me an email or text and love to get together and discuss that. It's been a good weekend. It's been a good day. Pastor Andy, I appreciate you. We've heard a good, good word today and if you want to hear good preaching, you can go to the Point Community Church and uh, all of Pastor Andy's sermons there. I listen to him often. Uh, he's a great pastor and clear teacher. You say, well, Point Community Church, what is that? Is that Pentecostal? Uh, you have to ask him. I think he's Baptist. He's kind of like a closet Baptist. They just don't put it in the name of their church. But, no, he's a great brother. I kid him about that a lot. But um, these guys are going to be leaving, all these guys going back to Kentucky. Thank y'all. Gentlemen, appreciate you. What a great weekend we've had. Again, you've been a big help to us and a blessing. May you leave and rejoice and uh, may God give you travel mercies as you return home. Um, it's been a good weekend. I'm going to pray again, just give God thanks for the weekend and ask him to help us apply God's word as we leave. Father, thank you for a great weekend. Thank you for just all the time we got to spend together as a church family. Thank you for all the people that had opportunities to serve, and we, we were able to see the body in action. 
as everybody using their different gifts and pitching in together and accomplishing something wonderful for your glory. We pray for the gospel seeds that's been mentioned just in the conversations, in the preaching, uh, receiving the preaching of the word. We just ask that you would send us out to water that, put people in places of influence, those who's heard the gospel this weekend, and may that seed be watered, and may you bring about salvation to many lost people. And Father, if there's anybody here who's yet to trust Christ and enter the rest that he provides, may we, may you do a work opening those eyes and, and ears and granting repentance and faith. And We're thankful for how you've encouraged us. Father, we, for those of us who've repented and trusted Christ and we've entered that rest, so many we can say, Father, we, we, we believe, but help our unbelief. Father, may that be true this week and you use us in a mighty way as we trust in you to be ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation for those in our sphere of influence. Father, we're so thankful. There's so many testimonies represented in this room. So many people have been our hearts have been broken, and we've been able to see you and your glory. We've been able to see our sin for what it is, and we've surrendered our lives to you. And We're thankful. We're thankful. We're thankful for the hope that we have, that one day we will be with you, experiencing the ultimate rest of being in glory with you forever and ever and ever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing, and this will be our benediction.